Welcome to Descender from Klarna, a podcast where we dive deep into the design topics we all think about but don't talk about enough. Uh, I'm Melanie Lovebird, a product designer here at Klarna. Each episode of our show this season, we have chosen a big global topic, but hope to bring that conversation down to the real world as our designers reflect on how they are tackling it in their daily work lives. This week, we have Yusuda and Selena talking about their experiences with translation. Yusuda Pimarski is formerly an artist wannabe, currently an end-to-end digital designer based in Stockholm. She previously worked on the post-purchase experience at Klarna, which manages, tracks, and evaluates Klarna orders, but recently switched gears to help define the strategy of the design system team. Before joining Klarna, Yustana worked on projects for Jaguar, Volkswagen, BBC, as well as startups and NGOs. She also designed the first Figamote plugin to connect designers and translators. She thinks the quirkiest thing about herself is that she is polyamorous, but I would say it is more interesting that both of her partners are designers. So I'm very curious if both of those are product designers, but also a little bit related to our conversation for today. Can I ask what the name of the, the plugin is and how long it took for you to build that? Yeah, so hi, Justina here. I, I worked at Phrase before the company in Hamburg, Germany, actually. And so the, the plugin, which is called, you know, Phrase Figma plugin, because it was mostly targeting the designers of the companies that would work with Phrase. And they would have the setup, the, the, the processes of localization and translation practices but not necessarily yet allowing them to effectively work with translations in Figma. So we wanted to bridge that gap. We released MVP after more or less, I think, four or five months and then kept iterating on it. And I'm no longer in the company, but I bet they're still making it better and better. Cool. Definitely want to hear more about that. And then our second guest we have is Selena Bertzler. She is an energetic UX researcher who lives in Berlin with her naked cat, Ninja. While studying psychology, she was convinced of her destiny to be a psychological therapist, but is extremely happy to have found her way into her current role, which she has a lot of fun with. Uh, In her day-to-day at Klarna, she tries to be the voice of the customer by analyzing, testing, and interviewing in order to understand the needs and behaviors of our target audiences in Germany and across Europe. Uh, in work life, she is super structured, but her friends will claim that she is the clumsiest person on the planet. So can I ask if that clumsiness has resulted in any broken bones or is it more uh, broken glasses at the dinner table? Because that is also my own particular brand of clumsy. Hi, Melanie. I would say it's more so losing things in my bag and broken glasses at the dinner table. But don't get me wrong, I've also already had broken bones, but mostly it's just the broken glasses. Okay, we'll probably not to break anything now. So bringing the official primary language of of Klarna is UK English, but we do support at least 17 other languages within the app. And I can say from my own experience as an expat here in Berlin, I rely very heavily on Google Translate to navigate the internet. But I'm curious as well for native speakers in any country who struggle to use different apps because of poor translation. So there are a lot of different ways to handle translation, whether it be hiring in-house talent or outsourcing, but I maybe want to kick it off with a bit of clarification around language. So Selena, I'd love if you would define for us, in your own words, translation versus localization, if you feel that there is a difference between those two. Yeah, I think in, in my opinion, there's a huge, huge difference. Like for me, localization includes translation. So I define translation as just like not just but changing another, uh, changing a text into another language, whereas localization is much wider and includes the translation part. For me, localization is more to really understand the different markets and to make sure that we actually launching products 
in a way that fits that specific market. So it's more like the, for me, it's more like the adaption of a product or a feature to a specific market. Yeah, completely agreed with, with what Selena said. I think my favorite um, definition that I ever heard looks at it more from the perspective of a user. So a translation means that an interface is available in your, in the language that you can understand. But localization is when you could really think this product was made in your country. It, it happened to me so many times. For instance, I love blah, blah car with my whole heart. And I was so shocked to learn it's not a Polish product. It's actually French. My whole life, I legit thought blah, blah car was Polish because it, it just made sense. Like everything was perfect. The, the wayfinding in there, the, the available spots, the way it was translated, the, the, the accuracy of the map, this is the peak localization. Yes, Lane, I'm curious from the research side, do you have any reflections on, on how would be the best way to, to ensure the work that you're doing in a particular country is in line with the, the country as possible in terms of when you do testing in someone's native language versus showing them a different language? What are the disadvantages and maybe advantages of going with an English first approach? I mean, I think the biggest advantage is English is a global language. A lot of people are able to actually speak English. So it makes life in general just easier to communicate all over the globe. But it also makes it kind of hard as we can't make always sure that we have the people that are actually in those countries and those local countries that are helping us with translating into the right local language. Sometimes we need to, we need to actually use some translation agencies that actually don't really know how the clan way of working is, you know, they are not like directly within the company. So how should they actually know how Klana is like operating, how Klana is working? And I think that makes it hard for translation agencies to really pick the right language and the right wording as Klana has such a special wording and such a special language to talk to, to customers. It makes it probably hard for translation agencies to really understand what wording or what actual like tiny little words they need to, they need to pick. For example, like Germany, we have like formal and informal language. And if we're just using translation agencies, okay, what should they pick? Is it the informal language? Is it the formal language? If you're using the formal language in Germany, you still need to be very careful how you're using the formal language because we are still talking about financing for like finance products, you know, which is still a topic which people are very scared in, in, in Germany. So like these are kind of the things where I'm like, are those probably disadvantages to go with an English first approach? But still, as I said, it makes life easier within the company to really talk about products, talk about features and all those kind of things. Yeah, I can also speak to disadvantages of starting with English first. Looking at it from the perspective of a translator, it's a surprisingly big bias to start with source copy. It's really kind of similar to how we work as designers. If we're starting to solve a problem and then somebody has already imposed on us, you know, a solution that they think would be best, we would have most likely come up with different solutions, especially under the pressure of time, if we could start sort of reactively, right? So if a translator sees a specific mm, copy to be prepared, in a very specific context that they have to understand. Once you already have a suggestion in a different language, 
you are more likely to follow that suggestion, to sort of try to mirror what, what was being said in there. Well, in fact, maybe this is not how exactly people speak. Maybe there is a better way to solve this problem. Yeah, there's, there's a few companies experimenting with it. One of them is a British fintech called Moniz. I, I love them. They, they are doing really innovative sort of experimentation with localization processes. And what they're trying to accomplish is being source text free. So not giving any of the translators any source text. They claim they managed to, to achieve much better user conversion in the flows that they're preparing and actually cost, cut localization costs. So they're, they're treating them more, I think, as UX writers at this point rather than translators, which I think is really, really a really, really interesting approach, especially in the world where we aim to reduce the costs, right? So a very common process is to even start with machine translation. And this is what then a human, either a translator or just a native speaker gets to review. But this is very biased. This is very heavily influenced by the source text, which is not always the best case for the, for the quality results that we're aiming for. Interesting. So do you know exactly how they are able to not have source text? Like where do they start from then? You need to have a very well integrated team, right? You, you can't have your writers or your translators far away from the central piece. I don't know all of the details in there. I think the, the crucial part though, which also scales to any organization that works with translation is understanding how important context is. I think especially in Klarna, we don't talk about it enough, but imagine being a translator especially a translator that is not integrated into, you know, the structure of a company or like an agency or maybe a freelancer who just like occasionally, you know, gets a project. And then you get a list of strengths. You get a list of, you know, pieces of text that you need to translate. Imagine how different the output will be when you have a screenshot of what will the page look like, when you will have the overview of a complete flow that the user will complete or even when you will understand what the company is trying to achieve here what user is trying to achieve here what is the business value of this what is the user need that is being addressed in here like all of this influences how translators translate how they work it's really similar to how we work as designers right i feel like i don't know that was one of the most mind-blowing insights I got at phrase it was how close we are actually to translators when it comes to you know the structure of our work and what we need to to to, to deliver quality results yeah I mean I was gonna I was gonna ask it seems interesting in that way how the the conversation around using a source text or not and I can see this even with our um, two UX writers that we have one for English one for German there is a bit of a difference in in how things come out when we maybe start with the German or if we start with the English and kind of how that needs to be to be translated because even the ways in which you, it's not just taking a text and then again, just translating it, just putting it through what maybe, you know, even like a translation service could do, but then also the way in which you're saying it, the nuances in which you're saying it, the kind of tone you're trying to give can definitely be different compared to if you're, you're doing it from German or if you're doing it in English. And if you start with the German side of it, and then you have, because obviously, at least in my experience, a lot of back and forth that I have with the UX writers, of, and we're trying to make it a bit more of a, a collaborative where it's not just, okay, here's the design, translate the text. Sometimes there is this back and forth between them of, oh, okay, 
if we want to give this kind of impression for the onboarding experience, if we want them to feel this way, um, we should maybe use this kind of tone, which doesn't always need to be one-to-one -one from, from English to, to German. But I'm curious also, do you feel that there's certain parts of an experience that are better to, to maybe be outsourced and not get that context? Or do you feel like the ideal is that any translator is, is more involved with the process or given the context of a screen and not just given kind of a list of, of threads? I was just having a thought about that because let's, for example, look at like legal text. There are so many general requirements that legal anyways have, uh, legal, legal topics anyways have. So in my opinion, it's not less risky or less worth it to have a copywriter looking on it, but I think it's easier to actually outsource because if you have a legal text about, let's say a credit agreement, this is super, super standardized for, for example, in Germany and also in the other countries. So I think it's less risky in the way of the user experience. Yeah. I think this is a really interesting example. I, it, it, like the question you asked, Melanie, got me thinking of the other end, I think of the problem, which is very, very simple, repeatable copy. Right. And then that got me thinking about the state of the products as in, are we really getting that simple that we are all made of close, continue, accept, are you, are you sure you want to, you want to do this? But there's, there is definitely something to it. I think a, a tool that mm, helps with outsourcing is something called translation memory. I'm, I'm not sure if this is like, I, I think mm, designers may not be familiar with it, but this is basically a tool that is like a repository of all translations. And when translators are working with professional tools, this is what will show if the phrase they're currently working on, if something similar was translated before and how it was translated before. So for somebody from an external agency, for instance, or somebody who is just new and just joining, this is a great, great tool to, to understand, you know, how we translated it before so we can keep it consistent in here understand how similar this sentence is to what I to, to what already exists. Sometimes it's a 100% match and this is word by word the exact same sentence. Sometimes it can be like 20, 50% depending on how many words are the same and what is the the order of them, etc. So I think when it comes to automating or or yeah or outsourcing or outsourcing the words, the the the, the work outside of the company, having this tool set up very well and having the repository that is complete and varied can really, really help, even if somebody's not integrated into the company, to really stay consistent and work very effectively. Yeah, so a follow-up question to that is, you're saying maybe having this type of repository up here is commonly used phrases. Do you think there's any other way to give guidance when something has to be outsourced? So is there any other kind of tips or things you've done in the past that have helped to give more context to translators and ensure that the translations maybe are a bit more accurate or a bit more even localized. I think one of the biggest risks of outsourcing this, that the, the translations is staying consistent because there's new people coming, maybe those who don't have, you know, the holistic context of your product. So um, translation memory is very, very helpful, but also all sorts of style guides. And those can be global style guides, but also style guides related maybe to a specific project. As Selena mentioned before, sometimes we're keeping something more casual. Sometimes we really, really need to sound um, professional and reassuring. And these are the, um, these are the style guides that a lot of professional agencies will actually require. They will not take the job 
unless this is provided, a context on a satisfying level, so understanding what exactly we're trying to achieve with these translations, where these strings will be located on, on a screen or in an email on a website. And then something else that is a great tool is a well-maintained glossary. So a list of all of the terms that we use in our product and on, together with an overview of how we translate each of those words into every language that we offer so that the, mm, translators can refer to those glossaries and so so somewhat similarly to to translation memory this is where they can get information on okay how do i stay consistent how do i make sure i use the same word as the whole product uses i think glossary is also very important especially when we want to update something so translation memory will refer to everything that already exists but what if we find a better name what if we rebrand something slightly, right? For instance, we recently updated within Klarna, we changed from snooze it to extend due date because our research showed that this is what people understand more clearly. And then the obvious way, the obvious process would be to update this in the glossary. So even though the translators will have this reference that this is how this was translated before, the glossary is the global, the global place they, sh they should refer to. So Having this well-maintained is, is really, really important when outsourcing translations. You mentioned about how you changed from snooze to extend. Is that maybe an example in which in updating the glossary, were all the other languages then reanalyzed and been like, oh, should we have this similar change across all the languages? Or how do you decide that, okay, that was what makes more sense in English, but then should we then localize and think about what is the best way to say that same kind of expression in the different languages? Yeah, this is, this is an amazing question. I am not 100% sure how it went in this case, but I think this shows pretty clearly how much easier it would be if we had one go-to person per, you know, translation in every single language that we offer, right? Like, this is the person who could do the research on this specific part, right? Because maybe, maybe Snooze doesn't really work in English, but our Spanish speakers and our Portuguese speakers think this is just fine. This works very, very well, right? Like, and I think this is where the meat of the process really lives. Who should make those decisions? How should those decisions be made? And then how effectively can we communicate with one another around change like this? When something doesn't work in one language, how do we, we verify does it scale everywhere? Or is this language specific? And then what do we do from then? I actually totally agree that this shows that there is a need of having a centralized person or a team that is only looking on, hey, if we change one word or like one term, which is like snooze it, should we also change it in all the other markets? So I don't know if either you have any experiences in something that worked well, if you made a change one place in the app, ensuring that the change is, is everywhere, whether that be, is it a spreadsheet? Is it a linked Figma file? Is there any other kind of plugin that, that either you've used that has helped? Something that I did before with my team, and then I um, showed a few designers and we're maybe slowly starting a different process in there is using the, the Figma plugin that our localization tool we use in Klarna offers. We use TransFX and TransFX has the Figma plugin that allows you to select text layers and push them to TransFX. So then when you receive the translations, you can pull them back to Figma. And this is, this is a really big game changer. Like I, I designed the first plugin like this, so I know how important it was, but basically 
you know how it goes in Klarna right now. You're designing something, you're giving it to developers, they're building it, and then everybody's like, oh my God, but we have to wait for translations. Does anybody know how long it takes to get translations? Is it 24 hours? But wait, do we count it from Friday or do we count it from Monday? When it's translation, we need to go to market, right? But then what if you can shift this? What if you as a designer, before your designs are finalized, this is when you work with polished translations. This is where you can preview what they will look like. You're saving time that would, it will take you later to actually release it. And then your developers, they, they just don't have to wait. It already exists in TransFX. So you're just linking the same strings to something that is there. And every locale is already filled with translation. And you're also, as a designer, you're able to either adjust your interface to something that you know might be breaking it. Or maybe you have some further suggestions to translators on when you would like them to improve the copy or, or change it somehow so that it fits whatever purpose, whatever you know constraint you're working with. I think that was a big game changer in our case. It seems like, as you mentioned before, there's a lot of movement made right now to try to figure out what's the best way to, to kind of sync the designer's workflow and the translation's workflow. Because I do, I do agree, at least for me as well, there's, there's often the joke of we try to test our designs in Finnish and German afterwards just to, just to make sure that some word that we're trying to put into a button fits because a lot of times in many languages, they just have longer words. I even actually experienced this when I was working in Brazil that even though it was completely in Portuguese and everyone was writing in Portuguese, everything was in Portuguese, it wasn't translated to other languages. Sometimes we would include okay or something in English or these kind of main action buttons because they were just shorter to be used in English, which I think actually got some pushback in some ways because I think some people using the app, they felt like, why are they using um, English here? You know, that it made it feel as if the company itself was, was not a Brazilian company, it was some outsourced company and that affects the brand image as well of the app because people were not trusting it is maybe to what you said used to know about you thinking that blah blah car was polish because of the way it was was really well designed and localized but then you know if it's done poorly then it's going to also maybe affect the, the kind of brand image as well i'm curious especially with doing testing uh, maybe here in germany or in other countries the ideal is obviously someone being able to say they were in germany and the researcher speaking in german too someone who speaks German and having the interface itself be in German. But curious about your experience as a researcher speaking English to someone who's seeing a copy in German, or maybe someone speaking in German and then they see the copy in English and your experience with navigating all of that. Good question. So in my opinion, as we said, I mean, the best solution is, of course, having the copy in uh, the local language and someone is talking to the user in the local language. But most of the time, it's not possible. We don't have researchers that um, are able to speak all the the languages where in the, of the markets where we're actually operating in. That's probably also impossible. But as you've already mentioned, I think good workaround that actually works also like pretty well at Klarna and also worked pretty well before is that you're having the copy in the local language and actually going through the interview or the testing in uh, English. It sometimes makes it a bit harder, but what I'm always doing is when I'm setting the recruiting criteria, I'll tell the people, hey, if you feel comfortable doing the interview in English, then please sign up. If not, then you should probably not sign up. It's not the ideal uh, solution, but um, still helps. What I did in my previous company is, which I found really interesting is, I had a pretty good connection to customer uh, service. 
And I had a few customer service agents that actually helped me doing interviews in the local languages. So we had like on a regular basis, we had like trainings with customer service agents for like how to do interviews, where do they need to look at and just like train them a little bit. And they helped me sometimes doing interviews, especially for example, in uh, France or Italy, it was super, super nice to like get their help to actually do interviews or testings in the local language. So I think this is also a good solution to have a look into. Yeah, I'm actually curious about that because I think that's, that's something that I hear designers facing a lot is that they're in a team and they don't have a UX researcher that speaks a particular language. And then the question comes up, is it better to, as you mentioned, have the interviewer perform the interview in English, but with the skills that they have as a researcher to ensure that it's a productive conversation or is it better to have someone who's maybe not trained as a researcher, not trained in asking questions in that way, but is at least asking questions in the person's native language? What do you lose and what do you gain in those two scenarios? I mean, it has, both of it has pros and cons, you know, as you've already mentioned. I think especially when I'm thinking about my experience in my previous company, it was actually easier to work with customer service agents. They were really, they were really uh, willing to learn they did the trainings pretty well. The, we had interviewed trainings where they interviewed me and interviewed other people. So they were actually like really trained on what is a biased question, like how can I avoid them? I mean, we researchers, we are also not perfect, you know, like this is something you anyways learn. And if you have always the same people of customer service agents, then it's easier to actually go with them through the flow and they, if they are willing to learn, then I would say this is a very, very good solution. If you don't have the possibility to actually build up a relationship with someone and to train someone on a regular basis, I would actually probably do the interview in English and have the prototype or the web website or um, the app live version in uh, the local language. So I think it really depends on what, what possibilities and what resources do you actually have. What also comes to my mind is that probably a researcher who doesn't speak the language, it, it's not mm, given, but it's, I think, highly likely that they're also not fully integrated into the culture of the participant. So they might not be able to catch specific insights that, that could be really, really valuable for the company, right? Like I imagine if I was doing, let's say, a usability test in Poland about tracking your deliveries, I would be able to much better understand what people are talking about, what they're expecting in terms of delivery management, because I, I lived there, right? I, Poland is, is the country I'm from, and I know what it looks like in there. And this is where I wonder, can a researcher who's not speaking Polish, like maybe, maybe this is also what we're losing then, that they, they don't have the full context, no matter how, I think, well you, you research the landscape. What do you think, Selena? Definitely. I think there's like a lot of market knowledge that you as a local person have much more than someone else that is actually has never lived in that country. But I would also say on the other hand that you as a Polish person then, or me when I'm doing uh, interviews in, in Germany, I'm still a bit biased as a German. I'm like, yeah, that's so German. Like being super on time or being super structured. It's like, aha, that's so German. I think like it has, you know, like pros and cons. Like 
on the one hand, I totally agree with you, but on the other hand, I also think we need to be then like really careful and like, am I probably a bit biased because I am from that country and I have like those, you know, like the thoughts about how the market actually works. So I think it has like pros and cons. That was actually a really interesting thought. It, it got me thinking about, you know, what is the balance between when representation pays off versus when um, fresh thinking or, you know, more like global overview pays off. I don't have an answer to that. Just, you know, throwing it out there. Yeah, that's actually a very, very good point. I think those bias and do I have a fresh view, is my view enough or am I still biased is something that you're, we're not only experiencing in our work life, you know, I think everyone is just like learning and trying to, to be not biased, but sometimes it just happens, you know, and as long as you, as you see that you were biased in that situation and make it better the, the next one, I think then you actually grow as a person and make yourself less biased with each step and each situation. Plus you gave good points in terms of, it seems though a good solution is, is putting in processes, you know, whether that be a repository or some type of guide. I think it's great to hear that with the customer service, you did some kind of training because I think that at least preparing people to be better interviewers and not just throwing them in into the context because I do see that sometimes when someone is trying to explain something in not their, their native language, what, what I sometimes see that people lose is, again, that, that ability, that nuance to what they're really trying to say. And I think oftentimes with the research, you see, oh, we tested these two different copies and someone said that it felt too dry or something, but they didn't actually mean the word dry. Even like in the way that they're talking, they're like, you, you take that little insight nugget and you bring it back to your team. And then everyone repeats it. They're like, oh, well, we said that this, this, this wording is dry, but really they were looking for another word in their own native language that maybe would have a bit more of a nuanced expression. So I think that sometimes you kind of lose in, in the testing when you're not in your native language, at least as the person being tested. But I think that all the stuff that you guys mentioned, again, is really helpful. Do you think that there is some type of future utopia where all product experiences are universal and there's some things that we could just be globalized in some way? Or do you think it's actually better that things are, are diverging, that we're trying to make things more and more customized for a different cultural context. I guess simply to ask, is it is it enough just to make something that somehow works for everyone or is it better to over-customize for every, every scenario? Oh, that's a tough question. I think it could go either way. Maybe, maybe we'll see products that on one hand are more and more global, more and more speaking to, you know, the nomad culture, the, the fact that more and more people speak English and more and more people identify, you know, as global citizens rather than belonging to a specific place on the other hand as we are getting better at localization practices i think as the products are reaching more and more markets i think we're overall getting more and more ambitious on the in the technological scene and localization is really bringing results it's really you know showing company after company case study after case study that it actually pays back I do think we'll also see the emerge of better and better localized products. So I'm I'm not really sure if it will be one on the or the other. I think we'll keep we'll keep mastering both global products but also market specific offerings. I totally agree. I think you can have a global product and it will always be good to have a global product. 
But I think there are specific parts where you need to make sure you have localized features, your offers, the way you're talking to your customers. So I think it's a mix of both because I would, wouldn't say that it's only global or only localized and very over-customized. I do think that, and also studies show that, that customers, they want to have personalized or customized products, but I don't think that we need to, you know, over-customize and over-localize like our entire product. I think it's the mix of having a global product, but still localize your global product that you have. Yeah, I think an interesting part in that might also be how far ahead the US and China already are when it comes to algorithms and having, you know, enough data to analyze preferences to, to show relevant ads, etc. Right. I don't think hmm, I don't think it will be easy for the rest of the world and for the smaller countries to really catch up with that power that really shapes how we build products. So this is the part where I wonder that maybe this will be skewing more towards overarching solutions. Yeah, just just a thought. One thing that maybe think about again, you know, what's the best way with the resources you have to create the best experience. And so I'm curious about some of the plugins and such that were mentioned. The phrase was the one that you worked on, Yusina, but you said there's another one that came out with Transfix. And so do those two solve the same problem? Or do you feel when you were working on those, were there kind of bigger problems that maybe in your backlog that you wanted to solve that, that weren't able to be solved that maybe other other tools are now trying to solve as well? Yeah, I think... I think as of now, every bigger localization platform offers a Figma plugin where you can push the, 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 the copy to the platform. One of the problems we saw, I'm not sure if anybody's working on it right now. I think it, it's, a, it's a tough cookie, is naming of the strings, right? So when you have it in code, you need to figure out a system of how, how these should be named. And then because it's usually belonging to developers and it's a lot of manual work for them. It's also a lot of style guides, a lot of just knowledge sharing, extending this to designers so they can name their Figma file, the, yeah, the Figma files and then the, the singular layers in the same convention as developers do. So then the integration can truly be seamless from design text layer to later move it to code. I think this is the problem, yeah, that needs to be solved and that automating it would really cut off a lot of manual work on both sides. So the unity in how we, how we name pieces of copy. Cool. And then Selena, just some kind of final-ish question for you in terms of when you receive any kind of research in a particular language, what is your tips for ensuring that, that the sentiment of a particular insight is translated properly if it's being translated from, say, German back to, to English to be shared with stakeholders? Oh, good, good point. What I'm always doing is I'm trying to have video snippets of that specific part because we're trying to record, of course, with the, with the agreement of our customers, we are recording usability testing sessions, for example. And if I really want to highlight an insight and make sure that it's getting in the right way to, to our stakeholders, I'm making video snippets, you know, where people really see where they're like interacting with the, with the actual product. I mean, we like blur, we like we blur out faces and personal information, which sometimes makes it a little bit harder because we can't show the facial expressions to, to the stakeholders, but that's how I'm trying to make sure to bring the actual insight to the stakeholders in the right way to like really 
let them see how they interact with the prototype. I think it's a really great point because in the video, you can see a bit the sentiment of the person. Facial expressions get some of those context clues that you're not getting just by understanding the person's actual native language. Exactly. Awesome. Well, I just want to thank you two so much. I think that there's some really great conversations and, you know, a lot of questions and answers. And, and obviously it's something that we continue to, to work through and try to figure out the best way to, to optimize in all the different ways and just ensure that we're building these experiences that feel, feel right for each country and market that we're in. I do have just a fun last question. I'm curious if you have a particular favorite word in your native language that maybe does not exist uh, in English. Oh, I have one. It's a very, it's a very Polish word. It's kombinować. <laughs> if, if there's any Polish speakers listening right now, I, I bet they chuckled at least. Kombinować, I'm not, uh, I don't think it translates. It's just like, it's, it's trying to figure out how to achieve something, but in a little mischievous or not, maybe sometimes allowed way, if that makes sense. My favorite word untranslatable. Melina? I'm thinking so hard. Oh, I don't know. I mean, like, I need to double check if that exists, but I don't think that it is. Uh, it exists. It's, uh, it's like, it's called Sturmfrei. And I was like really happy when I was younger and I could tell my friends, oh, ich hab Sturmfrei, which means my parents are not at home, so I can do whatever I want to do. <laughs> and I need to double check if that exists, but I don't think that it exists. I love that. I think one thing I've loved in uh, learning a bit of German is how, how you can just create new words so easily of kind of different concepts and, and combine to make something new. <laughs> well, cool. Thanks again, the two of you for, for coming on the show. And we will link some of the, the things you mentioned in the description notes so people can maybe follow up and, and test out some of the solutions that we talked about. Any final thoughts or words? I'm thinking of anything, but... It's Friday. <laughs> it was so nice to talk about it. I, I was so looking forward to having a podcast episode dedicated to translation and localization. It, I think it's such a cool topic. The Sender is sponsored by the design team at Klarna. It's produced by Jumotran Dachon, Francesca Cutulo, Melanie Lovebird, Anusha Hussain, and Rachel Rosenson. To learn more about your regular career paths on the Klarna design team, head to klar.com slash careers. A special thanks to Aljan Högström for our music throughout this episode. Got questions you want to hear other designers answer? Write us at thesender at klarna.com. See you next time.